like scary movies. Uh huh. What's your favorite scary movie? Whatever you do. And I'm Noah, and today we're talking about a 2008 classic, The Strangers. Um, speaking of 2008, uh, Caitlin, where were you? I was two years out of high school. I graduated in 2006. Uh, go Red Raiders at Ocean City High School in Ocean City, New Jersey. You're two years older than me? I guess so. <laughs> yeah. Dang. Dang, bro. And um, I actually was in college at the time. I studied for two and a half years um, at an American school in in Rome, Italy. It's a fun fact about me. Uh, I studied art history. That sounds very American. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yes, I was. I, I guess this movie wasn't on my radar. So I'd come back. This is. It said it came out in May. So around that time, I was finishing up another semester of college in Italy. Tight, tight. Huh. Where were you? What were you doing cool. in 2008? Oh, I'm gonna paint you a picture. So. Picture a younger me, no facial hair, um, which if anybody doesn't know what I look like, I have uh, very crusty facial hair, (laughs) but no facial hair, Uh, a swoopy emo bang, puka shell necklace, and a girl's purple and green flannel shirt. Noah's taking three separate friends on three separate adventures to go see the strangers at our local Regal Cinema, which locals kind we were 30 minutes away from the from the nearest um theater but uh yeah i was working at a video store i was really really into horror and i honestly thought this movie was genius it like broke my little kid my kid 18 year old (laughs) mind i was just about to graduate high school and uh Still not sure what to do with my life. Yeah, it sounds like you had a lot of luck going on. It sounds like you were accepting of like at least three different of the high school phases. You had a little like hot topic goth going on. <laughs> you had a little uh-huh. like hipstery going on. And then the flannel. I feel like maybe the, the women's like multicolored flannel would be a little bit like, you know, hot topic goth. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, I was like a skater s- kid. Like proto scene skater kid. Right. Who really, really liked horror movies. Um, Cool. Yeah, it it was a look. I regret it. Uh, (laughs) Uh, And we'll have uh, photos down in the the description below. I'm just kidding. I don't know. I'll have a link as to where we can find photos. (laughs) Oh, man. You have to put one up if I put one up, though. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I could put put a high school chess in eight. I really really was nothing special. I was trying to. There was a lot of things I was trying to be in in high school. And I don't know. It was weird. Yeah, I'll put some up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Maybe we'll put it on the Instagram. Yeah, the Instagram or the or the Discord. Yeah. Once we get oh that God. Going. Yeah. MySpace. I was still using MySpace. So 2008. No, because 2006. Yeah. I would say because I when I went to school in September of 2006, I remember you still had to get you still had to have a university email address in order to access Facebook because Facebook was brand new at the time. So I remember being so oh, excited. Weird to get to my university and get my email account so that I could sign up for Facebook. So I have to say that like 2008, 
I mean, we definitely, I don't think MySpace was really even a thing. I think Facebook had really taken, taken up, you know, space. And what's exciting about The Strangers, I think, is that this is really kind of the first film that's in our, like, contemporary. It's like it's in our, like, adolescent contemporary lives. Does that make sense? Like, you saw in the I theaters so, is what yeah. I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, my friends would drive to, like, we were at the point where we had licenses. Not me. I got my license at, like, 21. But everybody else <laughs> had their license. Story. You know, we were, like, on our own. Yeah, yeah. I could go on forever about yeah. about me. <laughs> I'm very self-centered. <laughs> but we, uh, we, everybody had their license. We were, like, kind of, like, just starting to get out there without parents you know or parents yeah. dropping us off or anything like that or so. going to see an r-rated movie by yourself you know what i mean going to, yeah it was yeah. it was the beginning yeah 17 is r-rated movies right or i don't know is that i assumed it was 18 anyhow oh maybe, yeah maybe it was yeah. i don't really know uh i'd sneak into movies anyhow or like have a friend that worked at a movie um castle nice. and i would yeah you know movie castles yeah um yeah somehow i always got into r-rated movies plus i worked at the video store they couldn't tell me what not to do so there you go yeah yeah all right let's get into it so please yeah this movie called the strangers (laughs) (laughs) it's exciting it's a good movie um all right so may 30th 2008 the Strangers was released. Although it seemed to do well at the box office, making $82 million from a $9 million budget, the film ramped up from a thrilling promotional campaign that was launched at 2007 San Diego Comic-Con. Have you been to a comic book convention, Noah? I haven't. I really want to, and I want to dress up, and I want to make the best experience possible of it, um, but I, I just... I haven't yet. I sadly, ha- I haven't been to San Diego Comic Con, but I have been to New York City Comic Con, and I'll have to say, my brother and I, who is eight years younger, so my brother's eight years younger than me, we went to New York City Comic Con when it was, I want to say, like in its infancy, and it wasn't like you know really really crowded. I mean, it was still well attended, but it wasn't really crowded. And my brother and I went. Okay for I don't know two or three years in a row or something this is when I was going to school um I finished my undergrad in New Jersey where I went to high school um so I was going to school outside of New York so my brother and I went to New York City Comic Con and we actually saw the Walking Dead panel before it like when it was just premiering so there like weren't a lot of people there yeah it was really cool I got to meet like Robert Kirkman a couple times because again like it was kind of relatively (laughs) unknown um so anyways I and I have dressed up so I am that nerd um (laughs) I am that level of nerd Uh, I've never made it to San Diego Comic-Con though so hopefully sometime in the future I can make it to San Diego Comic-Con Um, So anyways, it uh, launched at the 2007 San Diego Comic-Con. The film garnered mixed critical reviews. Some, including Roger Ebert, didn't think the suspenseful nature of the film succeeded its seemingly random acts of violence. Um, I guess they just weren't up to their critic standards. Um, But that was the success of the film and exactly how the writer and director Brian Bertino wanted the film to come across. He wanted um, to display the banality of random murder, stranger on stranger murder. Um, He was inspired by both the Tate-LaBianca murders, which are the famous Manson family murders. For those of you who don't know, uh, Charles Manson and this kind of like helter-skelter movement, he kind of in the height of the 60s got this kind of group of kids really together. They were like 18, 19. They're so young together and murdered um, Sharon Tate, who was at the time the fiance or they were married and she was pregnant. 
the wife of Roman Polanski, who, you know, has a lot of problems, but we'll move on past that. Um, and then it was this kind of seemingly random murder um, that the uh, film director and writer was inspired by. It was like notability. I mean, everyone knows Charles Manson and the Manson family. And then uh, he was also inspired by a string of random home invasions in his house when he was a kid. And he stated in an interview, as a kid, I lived in a house on a street in the middle of nowhere. One night while our parents were out, somebody knocked on the front door and my little sister answered it. At the door were some people asking for somebody who didn't live there. We later found out that these people were knocking on doors in the area and if no one was home, they would break into the houses. End quote. So, really spooky. Oh. Now, the movie Have is, you ever broken into a house? Um, I have never broken into a house. I'm trying to think if I've ever had to, like, break into a house because it was my house and I locked myself out. I did lock myself out of a house that I was babysitting for once. And they luckily like I was house sitting for the actual house because they had gone on a trip and I locked myself out and because the door like automatically locked behind you. And I think we just had to call a locksmith and get the lock undone. (laughs) So nothing truly exciting. Have you broken into a house before? Yeah. uh, So there were all these like summer homes on a back in a back road where I grew up uh-huh. and me and my friend, me and my friend Scotty used to just find open windows and just walk around, like not do anything weird, but like, yeah. just like walk around. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. There's a sense of voyeurism, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we weren't doing anything bad. We were just like, you know, finding, finding small little summer homes, seeing if we could get into them without like breaking anything and yeah, it's fine. looking around. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. No, no harm, no foul. I mean, you might've just like, you know, incriminated yourself, but that's fine. I mean, statute of limitations. That's true. Motherfucker. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Okay, so now in the movie itself, in like the opening credits of the movie, it says that it's based on true events. However, there were no such murders that took place that matched the movie's plot exactly. And this is kind of a trend, I think, with a lot of horror movies that they like say it's based off of true events to just kind of like scare you even more about the, the movie itself. Um, but a lot yeah. of the times it's like not actually like, you know, Blair Witch is a really good example of that. Um, like almost to like, you know, the umpteenth degree. Um, some critics, mm. however, thought that the movie was based on the Ketty cabin murders that took place in 1981 that occurred in a small vacation community in California's Sierra Nevada area. Four members of a family were brutally murdered in their vacation cabin, seemingly by strangers. Um, although interest in the case resurged after this movie came out, it still remains unsolved today, which I thought was interesting. So yeah, Liv Tyler was the original pick for the role of Kirsten. Um, however, she hadn't worked for a number of years after the birth of her son. She read the script on a long flight and liked how the author had a, quote, way of saying a lot, but not saying everything. Often in movies, it's all spelled out for you and the dialogue is very explanatory. Brian doesn't write like that. He writes how normal people communicate with questions lingering. I knew it would be interesting to act that, end quote. Uh, They filmed mostly on location on a set constructed house outside of Florence, South Carolina. And although set in 2005, they wanted the 1970s house and decor to be set like in a time capsule, pretty much. That's cool. Yeah. Um, During the production, it was reported that Liv Tyler came down with tonsillitis due to the extensive screaming the role required her to do, which there is a lot of Liv Tyler screaming in this movie. Um, Tyler would later recall that it was being the most difficult film she'd ever worked on, both physically and emotionally. And um, she was on Lord of the Rings, so like that's saying something. I just think that's like. A and movie. Armageddon. Oh yeah, right, Armageddon, where some you know <laughs> people die 
spoiler alert. According, <laughs> sorry. This, so this must have been post Armageddon then, because she really like that was her one of her like big breakouts, right? She she was pretty young in Armageddon. Yeah. So according that theme to... song, God. Oh man, I'd stay awake just to hear you screaming or whatever it is. <laughs> Good job. Good job, everyone. And scene. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> according to Laura Margolis, who played the pinup girl, um, so all of the characters we'll see the like stranger characters don't really have. Have, like names they just have um, names based off of the masks that they're wearing right the actress who played the pinup girl um she said that tyler also specifically requested that she not see her mask prior to filming she's like i got strict instructions not to let live and this is laura margola speaking see me in my mask before we shot the first scene that i shot was stalking her outside the barn i had been told that she really wanted to be scared she didn't want to have to fake it and so it was my responsibility to really scare her so we shot that scene. I ran at her. She started actually screaming and then she kicked me away. So I thought that was a really cool quote. And that's like a, a oh. really neat fun fact. Yeah. Um, mm. The masks that were also featured in the film were chosen by the director, Bertino, who wanted them to appear as though like the killers could have picked them up in any store. And I thought that the man in the mask, his mask was very resemblant of like the, that scarecrow mask from Batman. And I don't know what the timeline is on that, but I feel like that had a lot of similarities. This is something that like you could just like pick up in any kind of, you know, party city. Well, the scarecrow, I mean, goes back a, a pretty long time, even before the, like the movie, The Dark Knight. Um, right. or, I'm sorry, Batman Returns? Batman Begins? I think it's Batman Begins. Um, yeah. But it also, it, it kind of reminded me of the Texarkana classic, The Town That Feared Sundown or something like that. It, it's a really good movie. We'll probably end up talking about it at some point. Mm-hmm. But in, in that movie, it's a man with like a burlap sack on his head. And that one is also uh, based on true events as well. Yeah. And you know what's even creepier too is that you see, I love to click on a lot of these things on Facebook that's like the creepiest photos from history. And a lot of them are just kids like in old Halloween costumes. And they just yeah, right? made Halloween costumes of whatever they had. So obviously a lot of them are going to wear like burlap you know, sacks over their faces and just sure. call it like something anything and so those are very very creepy i suggest anyone who's interested to just google them um last couple things here uh i just like to kind of talk about why a lot of the horror movie critics didn't enjoy the movie and then like why a lot of them did so as i mentioned earlier earlier a lot of the critics panned the movie for its seemingly random acts of violence and how the characters didn't fight as hard as the typical horror movie protagonists to survive and that a true hero like never emerges in the film like it's it's interesting when films kind of like break the canon of like what they think a horror movie hero or heroine should be. So I think sure. critics sometimes like need a couple years to like catch up. Um, so but that's also why a lot of the critics and scholars liked the movie. It can be said that it's kind of murder for murder's sake. However, they applauded the long periods of suspense throughout the movie, that there really isn't a lot of violence for most of the film. It's mostly about that lead up to the final act. Um, and this I kind of pulled, I mean, a lot of this I pulled directly from Wikipedia, but this I thought was really interesting. So the film has also been noted by scholar Philip Simpson as highlighting, quote, the divide between the underprivileged and the privileged classes, end quote, as well as for its inversion of commonly held beliefs about violence in urban areas and kind of the pastoral ethics 
I thought it was just really interesting to talk about how any it can really happen. Violence can really happen anywhere, and especially in the country where you're isolated. And that's really where a lot of, you know, film, horror films take place is just this, like, isolation of the country. And, you know, when you're in suburbia, which we talked about really in The Exorcist, too, is it like when you're in suburbia, you know, or in a city, it's like, oh, violence can't happen here. We're a protected class. Like Liv Tyler and I don't can't remember the other guy who played her for fiance or boyfriend scott speedman i believe thank you yes <laughs> scott speedboat um, yeah, perfect. So that they would be a protected class of citizen. You know what I mean? And like violence can't happen to them. But now this sure. is like seemingly random stranger on stranger violence. So yeah, that's all I got. What do you got, Noah? Wow. Uh, you know, that was that was great. It is such an interesting movie in the sense that, well, I guess I'll, I'll preface it this way. My landlord in Texas always used to be like, crime doesn't have a zip code. And I always thought that was the funniest quote that anyone could say to me. I I took it seriously, but I just thought that was really funny. I'm also curious as to the context of it. (laughs) Sure, yeah. He had this scripted line that he'd say to people, crime doesn't have a zip code. uh, This movie really exemplifies that. Before we get into it, I kind of wanted to discuss the characters of this movie as they don't really have names, the the violent ones, that is. Um, So there's three main assailants in this film. The first being a very large man with a burlap sack on his head. They call him the man in the mask, or that's what we will refer to it. Uh, There's a blonde woman who is wearing a doll mask. People call her doll face, or at least the fans of the movie call her doll face. And then there is pinup girl, uh, the the woman with a pinup mask on. So yeah, you ready to get into it? Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. So before the movie begins, a deep voice narrator shares some fun statistics about violent crimes in America. Law and order voice. Exactly. (laughs) I'll I'll get into it in a sec. Yeah, sorry. Uh, Or, you know, my my best personal impression of it. He then paints a picture for us. On the night of February 11th, 2005, Kristen McKay and James Hoyt left a friend's wedding reception and returned to the Hoyt family summer house. The brutal events that took place there are not still are still not entirely known. I'm not re-recording that. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I love it so much. I love your Law and Order voice. It was great. Thank you. It's not good. <laughs> I'm not a voice actor, and I won't pretend to be. The epilogue opens on the images of a quaint family homes passing by while the engine of an old truck growls in the background. The camera cuts to two Mormon boys standing behind the ruins of a car on the road outside of a small home. As the boys enter the house, we're shown remnants of some gruesome occurrence. A broken down door, a bloody knife, a shotgun on the counter, and blood from wall to wall. All the while, we hear the shaky 911 call the boys place. We've arrived very quickly at the first act, which I am calling, Don't get a room, why don't ya? (laughs) Or I was gonna say... Smoking kills, lol. Smoking kills. Yeah, that's the subtext of it. Yeah, thank you. We see a nicely dressed couple sitting awkwardly in a car. The man in the driver's seat is visibly angry while the woman looks out the window with fresh tears on her cheeks. They are never formally introduced, but this is assumed to be James Hoyt and Kristen McKay our unfortunate protagonists of sort. I always say protagonist, but like put quotes around it. So it's just the people we follow in the movie. There's not a better word for it. Mm -hmm. As they arrive at James's family summer home, he stomps into the house as Kristen trails behind to smoke. 
Inside the house, a soft, sad song plays on the record player, and Kristen sees a romantically decorated dining table. Something didn't clearly go as planned, and the couple painfully tries to navigate the situation. James states that he'll set up his sleeping arrangement in a different room, then leaves to call a friend, Mike, to let him know that things didn't go as planned. I'm just gonna say it right off the bat, I fucking hate James. I'll talk about it later and all the reasons I hate James, but I hate James so much. Yeah, I didn't feel any sympathy for him really at all. Number one, you never propose at a wedding. We'll, we'll get into that. We'll get into okay. that. Let's, Sorry, thank you. It's okay. I just want it to be known, James fucking sucks in every way. So we cut to a flashback of earlier that evening. At the wedding reception, James approaches Kristen. The two still seem happy at this point. When the reception ends, James carries Kristen out to the parking lot, puts her down, and proposes to her. Never a good look to propose <sighs> in A, at a wedding, and B, in the parking lot of a wedding. Who, number one, carries her, like, across a parking lot? Like, it's the threshold of your, like, marriage, you know, bed right. or whatever that is. So and then dumb. set her down in the middle of the parking lot. <laughs> uh, uh, I you, I wish you could see how hard I'm eye rolling right now. <laughs> oh, my eyes are permanently in the back of my head. I actually can't watch any more movies because my <laughs> eyes rolled Damn so it, far Noah. back. <laughs> God. We don't hear her answer, but we can assume that it didn't go the way James had hoped. Back to the present time, James sits down at the dining table, a very large bucket of ice cream in front of him. That's how I solve all my problems. God, it was so big, and he just, like, plops it open, rips the top <sighs> off, and just starts yep. digging in. The only relatable thing about him. Right, yeah, I totally get that. James slides the ring to Kristen, telling her to keep it. Kristen then explains that she simply isn't ready to get married, and James storms off to the record player. Kristen pursues him, kissing his neck and turning him around. And then James looks into her eyes and says, You're my girl. Ew! He's so, so cringy. bad. <laughs> yeah. So I understand in some moments when people are like, the writing is really terrible and the dialogue is really terrible. But then I also understand how like mid to late 2000s guys, like that was how they talked. Yeah, let's let's definitely save a lot of this for the end, but I Sorry. totally agree with you. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no apologies necessary. Yeah. You're totally right. Like the, yeah. the writing is awful, but yeah. I mean, guys also suck a yeah. lot. The two began a real steamy session of sexing on the kitchen table. That was the last line for that part. Good job. <laughs> this is, I think, the first sex scene that we've discussed, uh, which is really strange for horror movies, especially going yeah. through the 80s. I'm already blushing. I feel like I'm watching this with my dad. <laughs> right. I, well, I am I have a dad aura, if yeah. you will. Uh, uh, I think they had sex in uh, Jacob's Ladder, but I'm... I'm not 100% sure if they actually, or if they just It was pretty sexy, but they never, like, really, I mean, you could, you saw a lot of, like, TNA of Jezebel, but. Yeah, know, there they, were a lot they, of They boobies. never really, it was a lot of inferred. Oh, yeah, because remember she, like, went into the, the shower with him at one point? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. it was a lot of, like, inference. It was never, like, oh, it's happening. We're all going to watch it, you know? I can't believe we didn't talk about how many, like, unnecessary, like, titties there were in that movie. But whatever. Oh, yeah. <laughs> unnecessary. <laughs> Sorry, the word titty is a little cringy. Yeah, it's fine. No, 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 it's, it's great. Just then, a loud knock at the door. The two button up and answer the door. You don't stop sex for that. I, well, at least I wouldn't, like, that yeah. late at night. You just, it's like, It's also, yeah, going. so I don't know if we've said this, but it is 4 a.m. in the movie. 
It's 4 a.m.? Yeah. I didn't know that. That's crazy. Yeah, they say it in the, he's like, it's 4 a.m. Like, who's knocking? And so then for me, that puts it into perspective as me being in like, okay, my early 30s. Okay, yes, there's like, you go to a wedding. It seems like maybe they had to drive a little bit to like get to that house. So then I'm like, okay, well, why do they stay at the house? But then also I'm like, God, I would be asleep. Like, I don't, I can't stay up that late anymore. No, my grumpy ass isn't <sighs> opening a door for anybody. You could be dying out there. That's all I think about. Young blood. Yeah. I'm not opening Yeah, exactly. The door. You could be dying. <laughs> that was their first mistake, I think, is just opening the door for someone at 4 a.m. Right. In the middle of sex. I'm surprised James didn't complain about blue balls, but I'll leave my comments about James yeah, right. till the end. This is the... <laughs> okay. the tertiary part. This is purely facts. We're clearly laying out the facts right exactly. now. Exactly. <laughs> A young blonde woman stands on the welcome mat, her face obscured by darkness as the once previously working porch light won't turn on for some reason. She asks if Tamara is home, to which James explains that she has the wrong house. She then says, okay, see ya, and then walks away. Yeah, okay, so that was the first instance in which you were like, oh shit. Because like her face was in the shadow, you couldn't see it, right? Because she wasn't wearing a mask. But she like, her face was still in the shadow. So this was a really good premonition. Uh, is that what it is? No, no, that's not the word. But it's a really good, <laughs> damn it, it's like a pre-word. There's a word I'm looking for. And foreshadowing, literally. Oh, so good. Foreshadowing to what is to come. And then gotcha. she says, see you later. And I'm like, oh man, that was really creepy. And then it I'm also creepy. like did she unscrew that light bulb probably did i was thinking so because he like tried to turn on the he tried to turn on the light at that point mm-hmm. and it wouldn't turn on but it was on before so i just i i assume yeah um and then he like screws it back in as she like leaves we are now at the second act of the movie and i i've said uh you you can uh you can veto this there's someone at the door and the window and the other window <laughs> Okay, maybe this is where we put in smoking kills because he goes out to get a pack of cigarettes. Sure. Yeah, I mean, at this point, it's pretty rapid to start the movie and then there's a it's so fast. very long yeah. second act. Uh, yeah, yeah, At least yeah. to my understanding of acts. If there's a real film nerd out there, shut up. Uh, <laughs> shut up. With the vibe thoroughly killed, James and Kristen sit on the couch. Kristen notes that she is almost out of cigarettes and James leaps at the opportunity to get her more, stating that he would like a solitary drive. He's like immediately back into his mopey self. He lights a fire for Kristen, polishes off a bottle of champagne, and then gets in his car to go buy cigarettes. Yeah, that's not smart. (laughs) Kristen takes a nice slow tour of the house, plays some Joanna Newsom on the record player, drinks a beer, and then she gets curious as to what she looks like with the engagement ring on her finger. But oops, it gets stuck and she can't get it off. I thought that was comical. It was it was funny, honestly. Uh, also, I want to note, this is the first time I'd ever he- heard Joanna Newsom. And uh, tw- 12, 12 years later, I'm still very obsessed with Joanna Newsom. So just to give you a little background on this. I didn't know who that was. So thank you for that. Oh, the uh, the like kind of old sounding harp player uh, is Joanna Newsom. Uh, I highly recommend her music. Uh, she's also married nice. to uh, Andy Sandberg of, oh, of okay. uh, Saturday Night Live fame. Or let's go with Hot Rod fame. Hot Rod's great. Just then, there's another louder knock on the door. It's the same woman from before. She asks again if Tamara is home, and Kristen doesn't open the door, but she firmly tells her that she's already been by to ask. Without another word, the woman walks away. We can hear her footprints on the 
on the pavement. In the living room, the fireplace begins smoking, setting off the fire alarm. Kristen opens the flue and after some struggle disconnects the fire alarm. After yet another flurry of aggressive knocks, Kristen calls James to tell her about the solicitor. James assures he will be home soon. As Kristen asks if James will stay on the phone with her, the line goes dead. Keep that like old cell phone. Remember she had like that old flip phone and then she had to charge it? Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, those batteries only lasted for like, I don't know, five hours or something. Five hours. And then she had to go to a landline and I was like, oh man, remember landlines? God, it, this is the only part for me that really, really dates the movie. I mean, like cars, yeah. people drive cars forever, but like though that yeah. quick slope from like home phones to cell phones yeah it was bad it's it is literally the only thing that dates the movie because like the the room itself like the house itself is supposed to be kind of trapped in 1970s yeah but then as soon as she like gets out that flip phone and i'm like oh man also her first mistake is she didn't call 911 just like right, right away like but that's just i don't know that's just cops me. would be like i don't know what we can do <laughs> Kristen sees this as an opportunity to unwind with her last cigarette as she smokes in the dining area. We see a figure silently emerge from the shadowy entranceway. We can't see much of him, but he wears a dark suit that blends into the surroundings and a crude burlap sack mask. He only observes Kristen, only mirroring her steps as she walks slowly through the dining area. This was the first like truly spooky moment where I was like, nope. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's what this movie is like. We'll talk about this a lot later, but like that's what this movie is so good at are just those suspenseful moments of like, oh shit. So how did he get in the house? Someone's in the house. Like, blah, blah, blah. you know, you're like running through all these ideas in your mind or these scenarios in your mind. Right. Oh, so good. And, and you don't hear him come in. It's been so technical at this point with every motion and everything so far. So it's kind of supernatural mm -hmm. that he's just in the house without us knowing about it or knowing about a specific thing that happened. And all of the interactions so far have been so like abrupt, like the hard knocks, you know, like going to, you know, the girl at the door, that kind of thing. And just, just to have him like slink in right. this like big unassuming character with no like music. That's what this movie does really well too, is that there's no like, he doesn't have like his own theme song where you know it's coming because the theme song's playing. As the camera switches, we see he's no longer there. And shortly after the front door closes. This is one of my favorite favorite scenes, by the way. Understandably freaked out, Kristen grabs a kitchen knife. She tries to use the house phone again, but the line is still dead. Her cell phone, which she had previously plugged into the wall, is now missing as well. Suddenly, she starts to hear noises. First, a knocking at the door, then a jangling of wood chimes on the other side of the house. We, the viewer, get the sense that she is audibly surrounded, which, you know, again, the sound design of this movie is, is very, very good. Mm -hmm. Kristen walks to the window where she last heard noises. She pulls back the drapes and sees the man in the mask peering inward. The man begins to bang on the window as Kristen backs towards the front door. She approaches a now slightly ajar door. A woman in a doll mask tries to advance through, but Kristen is able to close the door in time. She retreats to a back spare room, which has no windows. Which is a really smart uh, survival level move is to go to the room with no, no windows. Actually, in this 
movie kind of it is because they're really like using that to their you know effect I guess so that in her mind like oh if they're approaching her at all of these angles like I should just go to this place where they like seemingly can't reach me although she doesn't know that they've already been in the house right. so I don't know like you can get and I'm like good for you for grabbing a knife you know what I mean I like wouldn't have expected her to grab a knife because she just seems like she's not thinking very critically at this point okay she grabbed a knife I feel a little bit better about her odds or her chances but still yes maybe going into a room with no windows probably wasn't the best idea i mean for the yeah yeah i guess i i guess in your i guess you're actually right yeah it's probably not the best idea but if they're like trying to come through the windows and doors and she doesn't know that they've Mm -hmm. been in the house maybe i I don't know who's to say the banging continues for a while and then immediately stops james enters the house to find a frenzied Kristen in the spare room. Despite her explanation, James dismisses her worries, casually checking the house and concluding there is no one there. You hysterical woman. Yeah, I hated that. Oh, I hated that. It was that idea of like, oh, her paranoia because she's a woman, because she was, it was like, you know what, bitch? Like you shouldn't have left her alone in the first place. Number one, let's talk about that. Number two, it's like, hey, don't, it's like believe, like not believing the victim kind of a thing, which is like something that happens. So yeah, he, that did not, he lost it. Like, not that he had a lot of points in the beginning. Yeah. He lost more points in my book. Oh, Kristen, you... You emotional woman, you. Yeah, exactly. You're hysterical. As the two check the garage, James and Kristen notice Dollface from the window, standing in the yard in wait. James, slightly more alarmed, decides it's a good time to grab his phone from the car. As James gets into the car, he notices his phone is missing, and the windows have been shattered. After a brief interaction with Dollface, he makes his way back into the house only to find his phone on the table, battery missing. James decided it's time to go. When he's decided it's it's a dire situation, then it's time to go. Yeah, of course. And a really creepy moment that I, I thought was really interesting was that I think it was Liv Tyler's phone. They do a pan of Liv Tyler's phone in the fireplace. Fire. Yep. Which I thought, yeah, in the fireplace, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, I thought that was cool, too. Not cool. <laughs> I, I apparently missed, I mean, missed it in my notes, but uh, yeah, you're right. It is very cool. <laughs> not cool for them, but like a cool shot. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The couple rushes back to the car and backs up to the road. An old truck pulls up behind them, driven by a third assailant, a woman wearing a pinup girl mask, as we've known, is is pinup girl. Pinup girl revs her engine before speeding down the road, smashing into the rear of James's car. Somehow, the couple retreats back into the house. James very quickly finds his father's shotgun and takes Kristen to the bedroom closet to get ammunition. He like rolled up his sleeves and I'm like, oh, you mean business now, do you? Like, ugh. As they prepare to leave again, the man in the mask hacks through the front door with an axe. After semi-successfully barricading the door with a an armoire, James shoots at the man through the door but misses. The two make their way back to the spare bedroom. James sits in front of Kristen, his gun at the ready. Meanwhile, a Jeep pulls up to the house. It's Mike, James's friend, played by Glenn Howerton? Dennis? Is that the guy from, yeah, from It's Always Sunny? Yeah, it's Dennis from Always Sunny in Philadelphia. It took me so far out of the movie when it was him. But that's not their fault. Yeah. He like wasn't that famous at that he time. He wasn't famous back then. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, I think I think Always Sunny had only been out for three years at that point. 
I think it was 2005. Anyhow. Oh, really? I think so. Wow, I could be wrong. Oh, that show's been around for a while. Yeah, yeah. It's really bad now, in my opinion. Anyhow, Mike leaves a lengthy voicemail stating that he came over early to console James. Just then, the windshield of his car is smashed by an unknown source. He carefully walks around the house, noticing the damage to the front door and the car. He makes his way to the back, grabbing a steel pipe before heading inside. Taking in the scene... He slowly walks down the hall, not thinking to call out. Seriously, why doesn't he say anything? Like, if if this were the scene, I'd be, like, constantly shouting for James or Kristen. Right, exactly. That is his mistake. (laughs) And we'll find that later and, like, right now. So James, quickly sensing motion in the doorway, shoots Mike in the head as he rounds the corner and falls to the ground. Quickly realizing what he's done, he pushes Kristen away from the body and then punches some drywall, as a good <laughs> a good old boy does. Right, I know. Tell me about it. And this is like a really good example too of, I feel like what's been building up to this point are these like psychological games that the killers or the strangers, if you will, are playing with them. Right. Because technically at this point, yes, they've been terrorized, but like there hasn't really been any like specific violence. And it's actually the first instance of like real violence is caused by one of the protagonists. Right. So you're like, oh, snap. Like this, I'll use a phrase from the mid-2000s, like, oh, snap. Like something (laughs) is happening and it's finally, it's being caused not by the killers. It's being caused by the protagonists themselves. Right. No, that's a very good point. James comes up with a brilliant plan to make it to the barn to access their ham radio the creepy old barn always a good idea oh no yeah you're right we uh, we never seen this barn before this scene i don't think but he he decides i'm gonna go out to the barn and i'm gonna access the ham radio Kristen begs to go with him but james refusing stating that he'll be all right which i thought was again a very poorly written line like she's worried about her she's worried about being left alone unarmed in the house and he's like don't worry i'll be fine yeah exactly oh man what a douchebag yeah james then rambos across the yard but is quickly apprehended by the man in the mask duh (laughs) yeah right like it was such a dumb plan to begin with meanwhile Kristen, completely unarmed checks the house she hears a gunshot and she rushes to the backyard but can't see james as the man in the mask creeps behind Kristen, she quickly makes the decision to sprint to the barn sadly in an instant she falls in a ditch twisting her ankle she crawls the rest of the way to the barn okay i have some thoughts sure number one of course she's not wearing shoes and this Mm -hmm. is why i always wear slippers in the house you know because you never know i'm currently wearing them now (laughs) yeah number two like of course she trips Ugh, it's like, okay, so every once in a while, I'm like a little bit frustrated by some of the tropes in this movie. You know what I mean? Like, of course she trips, of course she hurts her ankle. She's going to like creepy headquarters, which is the barn, you know? And it's like, all right. Okay. But yeah, I just have to move on from that. It reminded me of the the Angry Beavers bit when they they get sent back to like an old horror movie they like called The Spleen. Mm -hmm. And they're with this woman and they're running away from the monster and she she falls and she goes, ow, my ankle. And then they run for a little bit longer and she's like, ow, my other ankle. And then they run for a little bit longer and she's like, ow, my ankles. It just, it 
kind of reminded me of that. So Yeah, it's a trope for a reason, for sure. Definitely. In the barn, Kristen finds the radio and makes contact, stating only that she needs help, not stating... I, I would have started off with my address, being like, help, I'm at this place, please come help. Her conversation is cut short as Pinup Girl attacks her. Kristen manages to escape and crawls through the yard. She is surrounded by invaders. She sees the jeep out front uh, and it's been set on fire. Hope is waning very quickly. Kristen makes it back to the house, but the power is now out. Kristen dives in the pantry to avoid the man in the mask. It's about to get saucy. Saucy is the wrong word, for sure. Yeah, no, yeah. (laughs) As the man enters the kitchen, he sits down at the dining table, letting out an exhausted breath. It's very rare in horror movies, especially like slasher movies, that we get this uninterrupted, intimate moment with the killer. The shot is intimate. It seemingly shows this invincible monster. Like I said before, how it was kind of mystical that he was already in the house without us, you know, hearing anything or seeing anything about it. Or having any, like, visual clues. Yeah, and what I do like about this movie is that there are a lot of moments of humanity when it comes to the strangers, and which we'll sure. see a little bit later. Um, I just think it's interesting that in this moment they show him almost exhausted, you know? He's wheezing behind the mask, which I think is really interesting. And also that, you know... He doesn't leave his mask. No, wheezing. He's, like, wheezing behind oh, the mask. Oh, yeah, yeah, Like, he's, yeah. like, having a hard time breathing. And I also think it's interesting, kind of like the tables have turned where she can see him you know but he can't see you know what I mean like he doesn't know that she can see him kind of like in the first part of the movie for sure yeah no it's it's a brilliant scene and it it really shows him as as human as you said Kristen watches as he stands up and walks out of the room just as she thinks she's in the clear Dollface reappears and attacks her through the slatted door before leaving. Kristen exits the pantry to find Dollface standing at the table holding the ring box. Noticing Kristen, Dollface grabs the knife and approaches her. Kristen asks, why are you doing this? But Dollface uh, does not answer. Shame about the ice cream that was left out. Yeah, right? Oh. That, was my, that was my big note from this whole scene was like, oh, God damn it. You know, James, <laughs> you left out the ice cream too? Like, I can't even like you at this point. <laughs> yeah, Jesus Christ, James, get your shit together. Speaking of James, through the doorway, James is pushed into the room by the man in the mask, who now wields the shotgun, unfortunately. Kristen bolts to the bedroom, but just bangs on the window, screaming. I thought maybe she could have used that time a little bit better. More effectively. Yeah, thrown something through the window, maybe? Who knows? I don't know. Right, or smash your body through the window. If it's survival, you're... You can handle it. I don't know. I've never been in this situation. Me neither. I assume I can throw myself through a window if if need be. Yeah. As she tries to leave the bedroom, noting that she cannot hear James anymore, the man in the mask tackles her to the ground and then drags her back into the hall. Ew, yeah. Being dragged like next to your dead friend. Like, oh, that was a really gnarly scene. It was a, it just felt like a forever scene where you're like, oh man, just being dragged through the blood of that, of Mike. Like, ugh. Exactly. Yeah. And Torture. I mean, it sounds weird, but it's it's a beautiful shot, you know, just yeah, how like it, no, it, it really follows is. her through that. So now we've arrived at what I'm considering the third act. Yes. Yeah. Like the daytime scene. Yeah. 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 It's 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 about mm-hmm. to be daytime. Um, I'm going to call the third act almost made it. But if you have another <laughs> yeah. one. Yeah, my uh, my idea, uh, what I wrote down in my notes was it's murder time. Like it's Miller time. Oh, I like that. Yeah. yeah. No, that's yeah, good. Thanks. Thank you. The next morning, we see Kristen and James tied to chairs, the three strangers standing before them. 
Kristen again tries to appeal to them, asking, why are you doing this? Dollface answers quietly, because you were home. Ugh, creepy. Yeah, it is creepy. Uh, Kristen turns to James and tells him that she loves him, brandishing the engagement ring on her finger. The assailants remove their masks, indicating the couple will not be making it out alive. The three take turns stabbing the couple with the kitchen knife. First the man, then the pinup girl, followed by the blonde dollface. We cut now to see the Mormon boys walking their bikes down the road. The truck pulls up and stops. Dollface, unmasked of course, gets out of the car and asks for a pamphlet. One of the boys asks if she's a sinner and she replies, sometimes. As the truck drives away, pinup girl assures the car that it'll be easier next time. Ugh, that was a really creepy line. The boys arrive at the house as they did in the beginning of the movie. They make their way through the house, noting signs of violence. They find the couple lying on the floor. As one of the boys attempts to check Kristen's pulse, she quickly grabs his hand and screams for one last jump scare. And that is the end of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> made it. I mean, we made it. They didn't make it. No, actually, that was like going to be one of my first questions is, do you think that Kristen makes it? Well, that's the thing. That's one of the big questions that I've noticed a lot of reviewers and people talk about is at the very beginning of the movie, they very clearly say, we don't know about the brutal events that occurred there. That to me indicates that she didn't make it. Yeah, right. Okay. That's a pretty hearty death scream. So maybe she's yeah. just... Maybe, I think it could be pretty widely interpretable. I mean, for how yeah. mundane this is a question. Right. Either she's so traumatized she doesn't talk anymore, or mm-hmm. it's a case of she or she's just in a de- coma. Or she's in a coma, or she just death screamed in this kid's face and died. Yeah, Who that's knows? true. Is that a thing? Like, it's called a death scream? No, I just made that up. Oh, okay, cool. No, it's cool. It sounds good. I hope I go out on a death scream. It's not a question that needs to be answered, but I think it's just kind of fun to talk about if like whether or not we think she she makes it or not. Because I, I was under the impression, yeah, by the beginning opening credits of the movie was that like nobody was going to make it out alive kind of a thing. And what For I thought sure. was interesting was that the most of the like gore and the kind of guts came from when he shot his friend in that scene. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sure, yes, it was gross and they bled out, but like that splatter on the wall that came from when he shot his friend. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. For all the reviewers talking about how unnecessarily violent this movie was. Yeah. I mean, there was some pretty gruesome violence, but honestly, I think you're being a bunch of snowflakes. And I think it was like the unnecessary violence. What they mean by that was they, everyone needs a motive. You know what I mean? For humanity's sake, Noah, like we need to know why (laughs) they did it. And for the fact that they were just like, you were home, you know, like that's not a reasonable answer for people. So that, you know, it's like society like needs an answer. And that's why a lot of the critics, I think were like, oh, it's just gore for gore's sake. And I'm like, yeah, no, that's the, yeah, that's the scary part of it is like this can happen and this happens a lot of times with serial killers is maybe they have an mo but some serial killers like don't you know it's just a convenience thing for them and i'm like oh shit they were home that sucks for them but like this killer isn't is still gonna do the thing he's gonna do or they don't owe you an explanation i mean the murderers yeah i mean like they don't have to tell you the reason because you were home and i think that's as a counter argument to reviewers out there i thought that that was why this why it was cool I have a lot of notes on this, but before we get into that, I would like to know, Caitlin, we've already said we like the movie, but um, how did you feel about it? It's a, It was a good movie. It definitely was the first movie of the movies that we watched where I was like, oh, this is like a real 
scary movie and sure. i definitely like the jumps because just not having the music give it a lot of it away because a lot of the times like the music gives it away so i know like okay if i can just you know like watch through my fingers you know because the movies the music's getting really intense i know like the killer's coming right so this movie i definitely you know was a little bit of like oh this is scary this is scary this is scary you know um so it was good it was effective in that in that way so i did enjoy it and i did enjoy a lot of the like i kind of like that idea of like a true crime you know kind of a thing i'm, I'm just really into like that kind of idea of true crime so researching this movie I think was really interesting I would say right. I would give it for myself like a six out of ten flip phones flip phones good one yeah six out of ten flip phones yeah I mean I'm, I'm kind of in the same one I, again I have like emotional tie to this movie yeah. so like I feel I went with like a seven flaming cars out of 10 flaming cars Mm -hmm. uh on this one but yeah no i think that's i think it's solid uh and i think i think that's a good place for it i think it holds up yeah there are definitely some moments when you're like oh yeah this is definitely like mid-2000s or you know like okay why did they have to stay at his parents house if like oh he had this whole thing planned you know a couple of a couple times you're just like all right he's not he's not like a charming protagonist i don't really feel that bad like he definitely didn't help himself out in any way and he definitely didn't help live tyler out in any way no he was either such just a good shitty person uh which you know yeah but also he could have just been poorly written because like if your partner is like i'm not ready to get married but i still love you why would you be all pissy about it and be like we're not going on that road trip we were gonna take yeah i know he's so brooding and angry the whole time yeah do you break up with someone if they don't want to get engaged to you like that you're just doesn't seem like you have a healthy relationship yeah you're just protecting your pride because it didn't work out the way you wanted it to and i'm pretty sure he like said in the movie like that was so embarrassing but like no one saw it number one yeah it's just embarrassing for you yeah so you got turned down maybe it'll work out another time like yeah and then he's dismissive of her like she's clearly panicking if i saw my partner panicking that much in that sort of situation geez i mean like i you couldn't not believe them Uh, it was and the fact that he like left her alone so much was just like okay dude like this isn't how you get through this like i've watched the amazing race enough to know that like you have to be a partnership you know what i mean like in any challenge you have to go through it together rather than splitting right yeah and then he like rambos through the woods because he thinks he's the hero and just that that line when she's like take me with you take me with you when he's like trying to go to the barn and he's like don't worry I'll be fine. I'm like, what? Yeah. That is the least. Exactly. What a douchebag. That is not what she's talking about. It, she she knows you'll be fine. You have a shotgun and you're going to get help. She's unarmed in the house where all the murderers yeah. were. What are you thinking, pal? I thought that was a dumb yeah, thing it's, to say. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And it's pretty much like, okay, like I have no sympathy for you. And then that also creates like Liv Tyler. It puts her in this position where like, oh yeah, she's actually the heroine in this thing. He might have the shotgun but like he is a very it turns him into a very weak insecure character he is like a weak insecure character throughout the whole thing and, and i think this movie is mostly about Liv tyler and her experience for sure throughout, through this you know she's the one that we relate to more one last thing about james or one last note i have about james we can talk about james all day if you want but he 
in two instances with the gun, he, I, this is probably just bad writing, but when they first ask about the gun, he's like, I don't even know where my dad keeps it. And then he immediately reaches up and finds it. Immediately finds immediately it. Immediately finds it after mm-hmm. being like, I don't even know if he still has it. Or he says something to that yeah. effect. And then they go to the closet yeah. and he's like talking about how like, oh, I don't even know if I know how to load this thing. And I thought that that was yeah. cool in that moment. I was like, oh, it's cool because he's not good at this stuff. And he says, oh, I lied about she's like didn't you used to go hunting with your dad and he's like i it's just something i said i lied about that (laughs) also he lies about stupid irrelevant shit like james sucks Mm -hmm. fuck you james yeah i also think it thought it was interesting that he actually gets the shotgun out in like multiple pieces right and i would not have known how to put that back together right but I guess like maybe because he didn't. Well, no, he didn't go hunting with his dad. It was just something he, he said. lied. So he's like, I don't even know if I know how to do this. And then he like can put the shotgun back together. And then loads and then up the gun it. and shoots it like a normal person who shoots a gun. And then has the balls <sighs> and the audacity to like fucking army crawl through the backyard to his barn. Like he yeah. knows what he's doing. Stupid, stupid boy. I give James a 10 out of 10 eye rolls. Yeah, I give him a zero out of 10 Um everything i hate him <laughs> yeah he doesn't get any ice more ice cream you know i give him he deserves that like soggy you know bluebell ice cream or whatever that I was i think it was bluebell. that's really sad yeah it was i wrote it down things things <laughs> about the actual like what the viewer can enjoy about the movie uh the the camera work is great it's not super polished uh setup shots it's very gorilla shooting a lot of the time like from behind mm-hmm. stuff sitting on a table or you know and it's relatively shaky as well. All the, all the shots are pretty shaky. Yeah. It's just someone holding a camera, not on like a like a stand or anything like that. Tense tense shots were scary. Fun fact, real quick, they shot the whole movie like linear linearly. Oh, like within the like its own timeline. Interesting. It's like shot for shot. Yeah, they shot where like weather permitted. They pretty much shot it like frame for frame. That's pretty cool. I like that. Uh, that's yeah. that's how my dumbass would make a movie. Sound design also very, very good in this movie. Like you said, there is very minimal sounds indicating there's no soundtrack. There's no like score for this movie. It's all most Mm -hmm. of the music played in this movie. Actually, I think all the music played on this in this movie is off of the record player. So it's in the movie. There are a few moments where it's like there's like a low, you know, bass line or something that's just like kind of looming in the background or like just atmospheric sounds. But like it's it's not. Mm-hmm. overly done to the point where like when he runs into the wind chimes the man in the mask runs into the wind chimes it's like it's very noticeable and i think both yeah visually and audibly they mapped out this very small area this like property very very well so like no matter what point in the movie you are you kind of know where everything is does that sort of does that make sense no it does and there there were a couple moments where i was like okay how did one person get from like here to here to here to here you know in order to like do something right but it it wasn't one of those things in the movie where you like really had to think about it too hard sure you know so i think they do a good job of like oh yeah it must just so happen that like doll face was able to get from here to here in order to like hurt someone or you know so you weren't like thinking too hard about it and i think that that um, was i yeah. think that that was amplified because they did so good a job of showing you exactly where everything is and like you knew that when someone was knocking on the door it was at the front of the house and when you heard those wind chimes yeah i don't know if 
it was just me, but I knew that was in the back of the house based on how they like move the cameras and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it, it was very well mapped out, but yes. And I think that that was the idea that how they got from point A to point B so quickly, or even point A to point C so quickly, like skipping B was a little odd because we know so much about our geographical location and like where, you know, where yeah. we are. Last thing about music. Yeah. I thought in lieu of scary tones, especially in terms of killing, like, you know, mm-hmm. the, the example that comes to mind is in Psycho when the guy stabs the girl in the in the shower and it's ring, ring, ring. like that didn't exist in the movie outside of what's what's in in the scene. So like a big tense moment for me was when and this just maybe this movie is like autistic unfriendly but like when when the fire alarm is going off and it's just continuously going off it's sensory overload for me and that really made that scene a lot more tense the same thing with um when she looks in the window i didn't talk about this earlier but she like bumps into the record player as she as she steps away from the window and it starts skipping Mm -hmm. just over and over again oh yeah and in my head that was driving me nuts in like a in like a good way um yeah a lot of that psychological kind of torture stuff and i definitely remember writing at one point in my notes being like country music is scary you know (laughs) like it can be just that like over the playing over and over and over again of that you know i guess at one point i think the record player skips like pretty long like for a long period of time as she's being kind of tormented by the strangers in the house and and it's like oh man that is really spooky that you know that overplaying of the the whatever the song was that was playing at the time but also just having them kind of always having that like kind of melodic country music in the background was yeah it was scary i found dollface specifically i know it's very minimal that we get time with each of these characters but i found Mm -hmm. dollface to be the most interesting and this section might be a little bit more interesting or make more sense if you've seen the movie so just a Mm -hmm. just a fair warning she's the only one that we like fully or not fully but we see her face at the beginning when she's asking if tamara is home or at least I'm mm-hmm. assuming that's her because she's blonde and the and the lady who's asking is is blonde. So I'm assuming it's the right. same person. Kind of get a, a glimpse of her. She's humanized a little bit when she picks mm-hmm. up this this ring box, as hokey as that can be, or like stereotypical of, of female gender as that could could be construed. It, it was interesting that she took this moment to look at something that kind of brought her into the lives of these two people she was trying to kill. She claims to be a sinner at the end of the movie, which in my head implies guilt a little bit. And then she's the only one who responds when Liv Tyler's character, Kristen, asks, why are you doing this? And as she does that, as she says, because you were home, I noticed this might just be me doing fan theories and that's fine. But the man in the mask looks over at her Kind of like it was unexpected that she was going to say anything. I interpreted this. She was also the last person to stab. They gave her the knife last. So first the man in the mask stabbed uh, the couple. Then the other uh, pinup girl stabbed the couple. It was a little ritualistic. And then she was the last person to stab stab them. Right. A little bit of like a hierarchy 
a ritual to it. And, and it seems like maybe this was their first time, you know, like maybe this was their first, you know, murder, um, just implied in the fact that the pinup character, I'm assuming is the one who says it will get easier with time. So it's one of those things where it's like, oh, okay, this is going to happen again, or it has already happened, you know, so we just don't know. But it is, I think that is the doll face who kind of is given a little bit more of humanity and that she needs to be reassured because of that, that like this will get easier. You'll be able to turn some of your humanity off over time. And that's, that's the overarching theory amongst people who like review this movie is that Mm -hmm. it's, it's their first time. And I don't know if that's necessarily implied is that it's all of their first time or if this is sort of an initiation of Dollface, which is again, kind of fan theory ish. Yeah. Uh, on my part, but I, I think there's a good argument to say that maybe Man in the Mask and Pinup Girl are a little bit more experienced at this, and maybe mm-hmm. this was just as much a story about two people who aren't getting married, uh, getting murdered. It's also kind of in a weird way a story about uh, an inductee into this weird killing group. Um, yeah, and I think that's, you know, where the author, I keep saying author, the writer and the director's um, fascination with the Manson family comes into play. Because it is a little bit right. about this kind of crew of murderers or crew of criminals, if you will. And, you know, that the little bit about like the initiation and, you know, just kind of being coerced into this thing and having to right. kind of be accepted into this society of murderers that, you know, kind of comes comes and goes and yeah it's interesting I I didn't see a lot of the Manson family in this movie so I thought that was interesting as to why that would be an influence um for the director yeah a good a good note about that too though was the the people that went to the to the Tate murder was Tex the man in the Manson family his name was Tex or they called them Tex. And it was two mm-hmm. women with Tex. Can't remember their names. I'm not that big of a true crime person. But yeah. I know it was it was a man and two women in that case, too. Oh, really? So I okay. I always thought it was more people that went in for the LaBianca murders. Like I said, I'm I'm not a true crime person. So yeah. I, might, I might have that wrong. Right. But I think it's interesting, though, is like with the Manson murders is that, yes, it's like seemingly random although I think there was a little bit about like classism and like a little bit of like class warfare in Charlie Manson's motivation to you know bring them to that home specifically um sure you know I I think it was probably random but I think it also had a lot to do with like them trying to like fight the system um and it's interesting just the coercion because like Charles Manson really didn't do anything even though he served the rest of his life in prison but like he didn't actually do anything he just coerced these people into murdering or into like I love the like the whole helter skelter there's gonna be an uprising there's gonna be like a race war you know with a lot of paranoia and drugs it was all drug fueled I mean they were all fucking high as shit you know when they committed these murders yeah i just thought that was interesting just the fascination that the writer and the director had a writer director rather had you know to the to those those murders and fun fact about me personal fact relating to charles manson my dad was in the secret service and he was stationed in san francisco that's where i was born okay kind of like a rite of passage when you first start off as a secret service agent i guess in the san francisco field office because 
you always have to interview people who make credible threats against the president. And apparently Charles Manson, like every year, would just say something that the Secret Service deems as like a credible threat to the president. Oh, wow. It was seen as almost like a hazing rite of passage to go and interview Charlie Manson, like the Earl, like the young (laughs) Secret Service guys. So my dad, when he was like an er young Secret Service agent, had to go interview Charles Manson. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. That's all. That's all I got from my dad. But I don't know if I'm actually allowed to say this out loud, but that's fine. He's dead. So both of them are, which is sad. (laughs) My dad taught me how to shoot a basketball. Thanks, dad. Um, Anyways, that was my fun fact about them. Charles Manson. But overall, this is a great movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. I had a, a few notes about The Masked Man kind of did like most of the of the heavy lifting. I would have liked to see some female on female murdering in this movie a little bit more. Other notes, Glenn Howerton kind of brought me out of it a little bit. Um, I don't find the movie necessarily sexist, but it's very male focused. It's clearly written mm. by a male. And I feel like there was a lot of there's a lot more that the that. I mean, the women in general could have done, mainly talking about Liv Tyler. I feel like she could have taken the reins a little bit more. I, I don't think that Hollywood has given a whole lot of credit to the abilities of women in, in times of stress. Yeah. I thought it was interesting, though, that they um that Pinup Girl had a pretty good scene with Liv Tyler, like out in the barn, where she was kind of terrorizing her on her own, you know, right. when she yeah, like dragged true. her out of the barn. I thought that was pretty good. But yeah, I know. I mean, I think a lot of the... The, like physicality of the movie and a lot of that physical torment came from the man in the masks right fuck the patriarchy yeah yeah i don't want to make any controversial statements but i thought that there could have been some some equal lifting on on a lot of different roles and i feel yeah. like james kind of bulldozed with some some bullshit and Liv tyler could have could have been able to do more things yeah i think that's just very mid-2000s machismo guy you know i think it actually was pretty good writing in the sense that like you know like that's what a lot of them were that's a good point um it's a it's a product of its era yeah exactly Um, all right but anyhow it's got the uh it's got the you slay me seal of approval we uh we recommend you go see this one yeah it was good the strangers from 2008 yeah if you haven't gotten a chance you should go check out uh well actually i haven't done this so i can't tell you what to do (laughs) 2018's the strangers pray at night uh came out um it's it's got christina hendrix uh one of my favorites from mad men i like her yeah i love her and uh I don't know anybody else about it. It's a sequel uh, that came 10 years after for a movie that wasn't overly popular. So who knows what's going to happen with that. But, uh, you know, with any luck, maybe we'll be reviewing it right here on You Slay Me. Um, Housekeeping. Yep, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to do the housekeeping. We can go. Do it. Nope, go for the housekeeping. Okay. I've been talking forever. Go go for housekeeping. Um, if you haven't already, uh, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also, if you want to check us out on Instagram at you slay me podcasts. Podcast, singular. Damn it. Um, check us out on Instagram <laughs> at you slay me podcast. Yeah, and then maybe uh, depending on what happens, we might get a Discord up. We might uh, start YouTubing some some things. But you know, that's all talking about the future. Um, you know, we have a lot of our, our eyes are bigger than our stomachs. Uh, if if you if there's anything that you would like us to review, anything that you would like us to talk about, um, you can certainly DM us on that Instagram, as Caitlin said. But for now, we uh, we hope you enjoyed the strangers, and we uh, hope you drive safe. <laughs>
And lock your doors. Yes. lock. Make sure your doors are locked. Maybe get one of those Nest cameras. I think, like, nowadays there's ways that you can prevent this kind of thing. Maybe not prevent yeah. it, but at least, like, protect yourself from it. So. And learn to listen to the, peop- to, to the people closest to you uh, and also learn how to load a shotgun. Yeah. Learn how to load a shotgun, um, but keep it – yeah, it's a good idea to, like, keep it in multiple pieces in your house and keep, like, ammunition locked away, you know, just for gun safety. But um, just yeah. make sure you, like, you know, protect yourself. This is the advice column of the yeah. podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Any. And uh, DM us with any uh, pieces of advice you may or may need. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. All right. Well, we'll see you in a couple weeks. Thank you so much for listening. Woohoo. See you then.